Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee. I'm producer of the event. The event, it's not an event. Well, it is an event. It's a sensational event. It's a podcast. It's a podcast about emerging issues, obviously, in litigation. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, this is a this is a collaboration. This is a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, and Law Street Media, and Fastcase. Today we're going to talk about uh, yet another one of those things where uh, when things go wrong, they go horribly wrong. And of course, I'm talking about the medical profession and the healthcare profession. Now, let's just get this out of the way. Remarkable people, remarkable things getting done. I don't think there's any question about that. We've certainly seen that with healthcare workers during the during the pandemic, and I think we've all had experiences with doctors and uh, and uh, and you know, thank God for them. But uh, as with any profession, there are people who don't uh, maybe uh, aren't quite uh, at the top of the game <laughs> or their game that day. And sometimes things go badly wrong, and then that's where litigation comes from, and that's what this is all about. So now that I've shared the love, uh, let's get into some of the things. Now, well, there was one, I won't uh, give this statistic because it's, you know, the more research I do on it, even though it was in the Washington Post, and it came from Johns Hopkins Medical uh, Medicine. Um, let's just put it this way. Uh, medical errors uh, are... One of the top causes of death in the United States. At least that's according to this study. I won't say the number because, again, who knows if it's true. But let's just say a lot of people do die from medical errors. And um, uh, that's just a fact. And from there, there have been, as you'll find out during this podcast, there have been, it seems to be, a real uptick in the uh, in the size of these uh, damage awards and verdicts in, in medical malpractice cases. Um, and they're, you know, exceeding $20 million. Now, a lot of, you know, I've seen some that were even much higher than that. But then, of course, a lot of these things, as everybody knows who listens to or knows anything about litigation, is a lot of the big awards uh, get reduced, get eliminated, get overturned. And a lot of cases don't even go to juries. And a lot of cases end up in defense verdicts or settlements favorable defense. So look at me, the middle child, trying to be fair to everybody. There has been a trend like that, and that's something that uh, that our guest is going to talk about. Uh, in addition, she's going to discuss uh, just a whole range of issues with regard to medical malpractice, um, you know, when, when to get experts involved, the importance of getting started and pulling them in early, knowing who the key players are going to be in your case. You know, she talks about, you know, the what kind of future treatment and what kind of experts can talk about that and what talks about not, uh, you know, assessing the damages of a case. And usually that's something the plaintiffs come out first and say, well, you know, the $50 million or well, why do they, why are they setting that uh, kind of setting that bar talks about uh, litigation finance, litigation funding um, and uh, life care. Will anything change uh, with the medical profession in light of uh, let's call them post COVID juries, even though we seem to be back in it, uh, and, you know, the impact of the news media on damage awards. In other words, what's behind this, uh, what's behind this trend? And some medical malpractice, you know, has been getting recently some, uh, some, some light in popular culture with a uh, very wildly popular, I don't know if it's wildly popular, I'd say it's wildly popular, the Dr. Death podcast. 
and uh, which has been spun off into a show, a, a series, a documentary, all kinds of things. So look for Dr. Death. <laughs> I hear it's quite good, and I am going to have to check it out. You know, the, the name just didn't uh, appeal to me, but it's like by the same folks who brought you Dirty John. The, uh, the, uh, the, the Wondery Group, which is really a uh, podcast juggernaut, apparently, they describe it as um, Dr. Death, a story of trust, betrayal, and miracles. Talks about the nurse, neurosurgeon who, quote, radiated confidence. Uh, I don't know if lot, they're intentionally using puns in here, but <sighs> looks like they did. Uh, he claimed he was the best in Dallas. And if you had back pain, he tried uh, and had tried everything else. This doctor, he'd give you the spine surgery that would take your pain away. Quote, but soon his patients started to experience complications and the system failed to protect them, which begs the question, who or what is that system meant to protect? So hit podcast. Uh, so, oh, look at this. Yeah, see, Dr. Death is a story about a charming surgeon, 33 patients, and a spineless system. I, I just really, I loathe writing like that, but I can't argue with their success. Uh, my uh, copywriting peccadillos aside. Also, the uh, another great podcast, the Crime Writers On podcast. They gave the first season of Dr. Death, uh, there are four of them. All four gave them a thumbs up. So that's four thumbs up. That's a lot of thumbs. <laughs> So I'm sure there's some joke in there about adding a thumb through surgery, but it wouldn't be funny. And that's why I'm not going to say it. But anyway, the Crime Writers On, take a look at that. You can go to CrimeWritersOn.com and see all the reviews of all the things if you like true crime. I'm just throwing that in uh, because I really like that podcast. And I like those guys. And uh, they did give the first season of the podcast great reviews. Second one, not as much, but, you know, it's hard to, do. It's hard to follow up unless you're doing The Godfather, in which, uh, in which Godfather 2 was awesome. You're not here to talk. You're not here to talk at all. You're here to listen. You're not here to listen to me talk about uh, malpractice because I think I probably just told you everything I know. And a lot of what I know is because I listen to our guests and our guest is our first repeat guest. I should insert some sound there. No, that doesn't work. Okay, we'll keep looking. Sandra. I'll call her Sandy. Chan Floney. She's in the Atlanta office of Hall Booth Smith. She is a medical malpractice uh, defense attorney. She counsels hospitals, doctors, uh, all sorts of folks. She's got her JD from Pace University School of Law. Go setters. <laughs> Do you still consider yourself a setter if you're just, if you're in the grad program? I don't know. I didn't have a grad program. And she's got her undergrad from uh, Farley Dickinson University. Go Knights. I think they're, uh, it's more than just the knight. It's, oh, it's Nitro the Knight is the mascot. Anyway, he's a knight. So with that, let me just dive in. Uh, we had a uh, wide-ranging discussion and technical issues, which we we persevered. We overcame. You should be inspired by us because we did it. Everybody's working from home. Everybody's got things going on. One person's selling a house. Another one's moving. You know, it's just, it's chaos. And yet we pulled it off. And here she is, Sandy Shen <laughs> I like saying it extra. Sandy Chanfloni with Hall Booth Smith. Hope you enjoy. Sandy, thank you for doing this. Also, you're our, our first repeat guest. So thank well, you. Thanks so much for having me on again. <laughs> you bet. So uh, I've already introduced the topic. We're talking about damage awards and healthcare litigation. And uh, what have you been seeing in recent years with uh, respect to damage awards in, in these cases? So I think in, in within the last, I want to say since 
2013, we've had more than uh, 100 cases in excess of $20 million in, in jury verdicts. So I think what we're seeing is this uh, trend towards these more uh, inflated uh, jury verdicts. And, and I think this is by virtue of a few different things. In the context of tort reform, you'll see legislation passed that will cap damages. And a lot of the damages caps that you'll see will come in the form of a cap on non-economic damages. So when we talk about non-economic damages, we're talking about pain and suffering and emotional distress, and sometimes in certain contexts, uh, punitive damages. Uh, But from that perspective, if the plaintiff's attorney knows that there is a damage cap in their state, they will then look to their economic damages to see where they can add value for their case. So uh, when we talk about economic damages, we're talking about the medical uh, treatment costs and lost earnings. From that point of view, they're, th- they're thinking, well, okay, how can I prove that this person is going to need you know, $50 million? And so they will find a life care planner. Um, more times than not, it'll be a life care planner um, to take a look at you know, plaintiff's treatment records and then just make an assumption that they're going to need all this additional treatment based upon what their current status is right now. Um, sometimes, and we see this a lot, they make these assumptions without having any um, you know, medical backing. So a lot of these life care planners are um, either nurses or account- some, some of them are just accountants. Um, they don't really have the background that a uh, you know, a general practitioner or a, a a physiatrist would have. Um, and so they, they essentially get their medicals inflated based by, based upon these life care planners that are saying, well, we are assuming that, you know, this person is going to have to need, uh, 40 surgeries in their lifetime to, to make them whole. So, you know, they're basically putting out these speculative uh, medical costs and putting them before a jury. So I think that's, that's one major part of why we're seeing these inflated damages. The Emerging Litigation Podcast, or podcast, is sponsored in part by Fast Case Legal Research. For over 20 years, Fast Case has been providing industry-leading tools to solo lawyers, law firms, bar associations across the country with the goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. They're trusted. Aside from delivering a vast database of cases, statutes, regulations, court rules, and more, because there's always more, FastCase is integrated with powerful digital applications like Docket Alarm, I'm a big fan, that help bring your legal research to the next level. For more information on what FastCase solutions are right for you, visit FastCase.com or send a message to sales at FastCase.com. I mentioned it also uh, because news is legal news is near and dear to my heart. Is, uh, I spent many years as editor and publisher at Mealy's Litigation Reports. Those were good times. Lost Street Media. They're also a sponsor. It's a free legal news service from FastCase that provides daily updates on technology, health, agricultural news, and more. Because, as I said, there's always more. They also provide Lost Street Insights articles, which use groundbreaking legal analytics to provide a new data-driven perspective on the legal system. With Law Street Media, you can get more out of your legal news with detailed analysis provided by leading research uh, tools like Docket Alarm. 
You can also get free filings, easy access to case law and statutes mentioned in the articles and more. Those are convenient links. You can subscribe to get free daily digests that cover the most important topics in tech, health, and agriculture by visiting lawstreetmedia.com today. I encourage you to check it out. I heartily endorse it. And they paid me nothing for that endorsement. Or did they? Okay. And now we're going to get back to Sandra Chanfloni with Hall Booth Smith, where I pick up uh, pick up my interview, if that's what you want to call it, our discussion, our conversation, uh, my babbling. And uh, as I said, you know what? And by the way, if you like this podcast, or if you don't like it, well, if you like it only, uh, subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us a good rating. Give us some. Uh, give us some love. Okay, back to Sandy. Thank you. Bringing these cases can be expensive. So, what uh, trends are you seeing on the on the plaintiff side? We're encountering more uh, third party litigation funding. So, these are very well funded plaintiffs' attorneys that are that are taking these cases. Um, they are, have these companies that will fund the entirety of their litigation. So they're not exactly pressed to settle a case, which will allow them to move forward with the case even further than what they would normally. Um, and in the same vein as that, there are also plaintiffs attorneys who are um, doing what, what I kind of like to call inception funding. So this is the idea that they'll take, they'll settle out with a co-defendant in a case and take that money to bankroll the rest of their uh, litigation. So that's another reason why we're sort of seeing these cases, uh, these mega verdicts coming out is because these these plaintiff's attorneys are becoming increasingly more well-funded. Um, the plaintiff's bar is also very well-organized. Um, and, and this is not to, you know, to talk bad about the defense bar. No, we'll, the, we'll disparage no one here. Thank you. But, you know, we, <laughs> the plaintiff's bar is very well organized and they do have a very good communication system. So uh, the fact that they, they are able to communicate with one another and tell others what has worked, um, you know, point to experts that have worked well for them or or um, do make a very good impression before a jury. They take all of those things into consideration and they communicate them with their their peers. So that's something that I don't think the defense bar really has going for them at this point in time. Um, although we do, we are somewhat organized. The plaintiff's bar definitely has an, an open line of communication with one another. So that's that's part of it. Um, you know, and, and I think this is, and maybe this is just the, what I like to call the elder millennial in me. Um, but the publicity around mega verdicts and the, the salaciousness that they make these to be, um, is also part of why we're seeing, uh, jury verdicts that are coming back vastly higher. Do you anticipate the pandemic having any uh, impact on the on the level of the damage awards? I think in the COVID realm, um, we we're going to see probably higher verdicts just because the publicity around COVID has been so. Um, I mean, it's in your face; it's everywhere. Um, I think mm -hmm. there is a, a case in New Jersey where there was a nursing home who um, they enough um, refrigeration units to store bodies in, and they were storing them in a shed. So um, that's obviously a picture that most jurors will not, not be able to excuse. So right. I think the publicity and in, in, in how the media definitely uh, presents that information to potential jurors is also having an impact. And and, and yeah. it's generational, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely a, a 
you could see millennials, more millennials getting put on juries and, and they are, you know, they have their finger on the pulse in terms of what is going on in the media. And I think that's definitely going to take some effect on, right. on these uh, verdicts going forward. Yeah. I, I think too, that, uh, but we can blame the media if we like, but the, uh, no, you weren't doing that. I realized, but the, uh, but I do know from being, from covering cases like in, in litigation, the majority of these cases either settle and, or end up in defense verdicts, right? That's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't remember the number in the area in Mass Taurus. I don't know. It's, it, it felt like it was one versus one verdict for every 20 defense. You know what I mean? Something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm just making stats up, as you know, I do. <laughs> you do it so well, though. <laughs> yeah, I, and I stand by it. So well, um, yeah, no, that's that's true. I, I I I'm not. I don't. I don't want to come off sounding like you know uh, the defense bar is burying themselves and and we're not successful. I think, I think that's uh, that, that's that's not what I'm saying. I think no. there's only about three percent of cases that actually go into uh, to a jury trial. So I I mean these things are definitely um, more of the unicorn, but mm-hmm. you know these unicorns are becoming a little bit more prolific. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we need to be able to see what's going on um, and how and how plaintiffs are, are obtaining these verdicts um, in order to address them and, you know, adequately value these cases for what they're worth versus, you know, mm-hmm. sending them to a jury. And basically, the jury's just looking at them and, and saying, I don't really understand necessarily what's going on, but I feel really bad for this person. And if that attorney is telling me that that doctor is so bad, um, you know, I'm going to award them $50 million. Um, you mm-hmm. know, we need to we need to sort of uh, cut cut this off at the pass, so to speak. But one thing you said earlier, um, about the a plaintiff attorney might go out and find experts that you're saying that an attorney might go out and find experts that don't really have the right expertise. <laughs> I, got through, I almost got through that. And, you know, some of my best friends are plaintiff attorneys and, and defense attorneys, but, um, but you know, there's, there's good and bad, right? Of course. <laughs> you don't have, you don't have to comment. Tell me about a inception funding again. What was the, what was the gist of that? So I, I'm calling it inception funding and, and, and I just call it that because it's the idea that, you know, say there are five um, defendants in a case um, and plaintiff settles out with one defendant for a million dollars. That, plaintiff can then take that million dollars and bankroll the rest of the litigation. So they're using settlement funds that they've already had and taking a piece of that to put towards the cost of litigation. So we see that happening um, in the context of uh, certain high-low agreements um, where there will be money given to plaintiffs up front. Um, And I'm not saying that entering into those agreements isn't necessarily a bad thing. Those those cases are few and far between. But but it is something that is happening, and it is a way for plaintiffs to fund their litigation further. Plaintiff attorneys will say that that's a way to level the playing field against uh, um, defendants who are funded maybe by corporations or by their insurance, right? Yeah. So I, I'm in. I think most plaintiffs' attorneys, and I, I don't even think you have to ask them. You can just watch their commercials. I think a lot of plaintiffs' attorneys are are looking at insurance companies as the bad guy, and um, right. you know, and I, and a lot, and a lot of the defendants, uh, especially in medical malpractice, uh, you know, they are 
they are insured and they pay malpractice insurance for a reason. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so the cost of medical malpractice insurance goes up by virtue of these mega verdicts. There's, there's a lot of things that sort of play into, um, why these mega verdicts are detrimental. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, so, so definitely, uh, skyrocketing medical malpractice insurance, uh, premiums is definitely a concern. Yeah. But I, a hundred cases, you said have come in over 20 million, over a hundred, over a hundred come in. Over a, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. There, and there, there's a ton of examples of this, but, um, but I think there was one in 2018, um, and I think it involved a um, a botched circumcision of an, an 18 day old infant, and it I think it came back with 31 million dollars. When I was emailing you about this before, thinking it has to be sometimes the nature of the of the injury itself um, is one that you know people hear it. it. They used to say that like about anything related to fires. Um, it was like such a terrifying notion, you know, a botched circumcision, you know, that's going to, that's certainly going to, uh, you know, ring some bells for people. I mean, things like that seem to seem to play into it. I mean, I, I sent you one, one that I found, it was just so it was, there was an absurdity factor to it where they were, they were finding, uh, candy wrappers and ketchup packets in the corpse of somebody who was dying. It's like, who thinks to do that, first of all? And then you hear it, you're like, how much can I award? Is there a limit? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I think again, I, I wanna I wanna say that that those cases are definitely few and far between. But when you but the, but those are the those are the the cases that are making headlines in in our sure. and and you and I think talked about this off air, but there was a a, a physician that was located in Texas and he, uh, they called him Dr. Death and, uh, they did podcast series on this guy. And, um, there's a, there's a new series, um, a mini series, I think Alec Baldwin is in it. Um, but you know, the substance of that is, you know, he was a surgeon and he was operating on people's spines and paralyzing and killing them. So, you know, those are the stories that hit the headlines and those are the stories that jurors are familiar with. So when they get called for jury selection and go into the into the jury box, they're thinking of the TV shows that they watched or the ones that hit mm-hmm. the headlines and thinking, well, you know, this person is 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 at trial for a reason. And so, mm-hmm. you know, overcoming that uh, that sort of bias is is going to be something that's going to be a challenge, certainly. What can the defense bar do? You've said some of the things like, you know, the plaintiffs are organized there and I, you know, I run conferences for both plaintiffs and defense. And I can tell you, yes, there's just a lot of sharing going on. And if somebody got a $20 million verdict, guess what? That guy's speaking <laughs> at the conference, yeah. certainly. And, um, but so what, what do you think the defense bar can do to, to uh, challenge these, this increasing or this trend of increased damage awards? Let me ask that question again. So what, <laughs> As opposed to going, <laughs> you know, I would listen to, I would listen to people like news people asking questions and like John Stewart, who's not a news person, but he kind of became one. I would say, my God, his questions are so long and convoluted. Just get to the point. And so here I sit. And now you know <laughs> why. Now you know why. 
<laughs> I know why, because like three other things come into mind while I'm asking the question that I think, oh, I should have inserted that. So I'll, I'll just go straight with uh, with the way it's written. So so you mentioned some of the things that the plaintiff bar does well. What do you what do you suggest the defense bar do to to face this these increasing damage awards? Yeah, so uh, I, I there really wasn't any better, but go ahead. Yeah, I, well, you know what? I think this is this is a, it's an interesting question, right? Um, can can the defense bar learn something from the plaintiff's bar, right? Why not take some of the plaintiff's CLEs? I, you know, if you're in a jurisdiction, uh, I know New Jersey has has quite a few of them where they put on these uh, these CLE presentations from these plaintiff's attorneys that are very successful in their specific area of expertise, whether it be nursing home or or general mal- medical malpractice. But but listen to them. Listen to go go listen to their to to their CLE materials because I think a lot of what you're going to gain from that is just to see um, the types of the the perspective that they're coming in at uh, into these cases and that way you can sort of anticipate their moves going into the case when you have a case in front of them with them. Um, the other thing to do is 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 sort of it's sort sort of just a personal practice. Uh, you know, method. Look at these damages, the damages of a case early. When you get the case, start looking at the damages. Um, don't wait until you're on a trial calendar to pull in your life care planner and your economist to to refute plaintiff's numbers. Um, you know, we should be looking at these, the, the damages aspects of these cases from the very beginning. Let's start setting the value of the case before plaintiff does. Because ultimately, what what's happening is is the plaintiff is putting out their number to the jury and the number that the jury sees is the first number and it's coming from plaintiff. So they're looking at that as being like, okay, well, that's the number I have to work with. Um, why not, why not put out the first number, put out the number first and, and take that, that approach to it. It's, it's a way to cement in the jury's mind that there is an alternative, more reasonable number. So if if plaintiff's counsel comes out the gate comes out of the gate at two billion dollars, now I mean obviously they can they can go up from there, but um, mm-hmm. but as as a matter of course they're probably going to come down off of that. But how much they come down off of that is going to be dependent upon what other numbers they're seeing. And if you get to them first, um, maybe you can sort of anchor this number into their their brains before plaintiff gets the opportunity to do so. It is a paradigm yeah. shift. So instead you, you of having, about, having uh, the plaintiff control the narrative as to what the value of a case is, you know, ha- start the defense bar needs to start doing that and start anchor and anchoring numbers in, in a jury's mind. Um, if you set the value of the case first, you can adjust that number. The, the, the juries are going to be a little bit more forgiving if you adjust that number from, from what you're presenting to them. But if you present them nothing, they have no reasonable alternative but to look at plaintiff's number and take that as as the truth and what they should be awarding. And I guess the uh, are there other ways to approach inflated numbers? We'll call them inflated just for the sake of this. Podcast. Yeah, for the sake of this podcast, we don't want to upset the, the no, remainder no. of your audience. That's the plaintiff's bar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, are there other ways besides bringing these things up, bringing up a, an alternative, reasonable number early? Yeah. So, um, a couple, a couple other things you could do. So I, I, I mentioned looking at the damages portion of your case from the outset of the case. So once the case file comes in, start to look at, you know, 
what kind of case am I looking at? Am I looking at a case where there's continuous care and treatment, or is this a wrongful death case where is the treatment has has ended at some point? Determine what what the perspective is as as to what the damages actually are. And then from there, start to identify what the key treatment providers uh, would be. Um, and, and I think I think I say this and then people are like, well, I'm not going to get any, you know, medical records until we enter discovery. And I understand that. But the earlier you can figure out who the key players are and who actually provided treatment for that plaintiff, the the earlier you can start to evaluate what what the actual, you know, future treatment would possibly be because then you can look at the, the treatment that's actually being rendered versus an expert witness from plaintiff's side who's saying he's going to need, you know, 15 surgeries to correct, um, you know, the deficiencies that he has now. The first thing I, I, I guess the first thing is to identify what kind of case you have here. Then the second would be to identify, you know, the treatment providers that are key to the current care and treatment. The other thing is identifying whether or not there were any prior comorbidities that this this plaintiff suffered from. So looking at that is also going to affect or what the value of your case is going to be with respect to future costs of care. It'll also help you frame what the actual injuries are. Because sometimes we're, we look at these cases and, you know, this person has had a, a prior um you know, motor vehicle accident and they had uh, injuries stemming from that, but now they're suing because they fell down the stairs or what have you. And you're looking at injuries from two separate episodes and being able to distinguish what injuries are coming from the actual uh, subject of that lawsuit is going to help with mitigating these damages. The other thing that um, you could do, and I think this is going to be something that we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more of in the future because there's, there's, there has been some federal case law that's been coming out about this. Um, the idea of what uh, what is actually billed in terms of the medical treatment versus what the actual cost of the medical treatment. And so there, there have been some federal cases within the last year where the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, they, they came out with requirements where uh, certain, certain hospitals or certain medical providers are required to keep a, an actual charge list of pricing. So it's, it's transparency in care, right? You can look at these pricing lists that will tell you, okay, well, this is if I don't have any insurance, my procedure is going to cost me X amount of dollars. If I have this insurance, it's going to cost me this. If I have uh, a different insurance carrier, it's going to cost me this. If I have Medicare Part A, Part B, you know, and it, and the, the new charge registers are going to be able to give you a, a little bit more of an understanding as to what these costs are, the actual costs that are associated with the medical care and treatment. Um, and, and I think that's an important thing to mention just because when we talk about life care plans, 90% of the information with respect to what these things cost come from either medical bills and on the medical bills, it'll say, this is what we're charging um, versus this is what, what I actually received from the insurance carrier. Um, and I think it's important to look at that. Um, but if you, but if they don't have those medical bills, these life care planners mm -hmm. are just calling up, you know, a, a local physical therapy center and saying, hey, how much would you cost per hour for an uninsured individual? And they're like, okay, it's, you know, $200 an hour. Okay, well, that's what I'm going to put here. But it, in reality, that doesn't reflect what the, the current position that that plaintiff is in, because that 
plaintiff may have Medicare or Medicaid, that plaintiff may have you know, the Cadillac of health insurance and may not have to come out of pocket at all. So I think that's that's something that, you know, will be really interesting as as these. Um, You're talking about the hospital price transparency rule, uh, which went into effect January 1st. There's a, there's a lot of laws that are coming out um, or a lot of legislation that's coming out right now that is providing for uh, a little bit more transparency to the consumer. And I think using those platforms can definitely help with um, the overinflated damages request from plaintiff's counsel. Anything else defense attorney should consider early in a case? Sort of identify those um, damages experts that you would want to retain. Again, looking at the, the type of case that you're dealing with, it's it's going to change the type of damage that experts that you retain. If you're dealing with an infant case, for example, um, you know what are, what are what are what are the infant's injuries and um, how is that going to relate to life expectancy? How is that going to relate to um, you know lost future earnings capacity and and things like that? So um, you want to look at what it is you're you you can anticipate seeing from plaintiff's side and get ahead of it. Like, don't wait until plaintiff has served you with a life care plan to retain a life care planner on your own. So mm-hmm. you have the same information that they have, and you can you can do uh, an early life care plan just to give you an estimate of sort of what you would look at would be looking at for future medical costs, and you can not present it at the, at the outset, but you can at least have an idea as to what the future medical costs are going to be. And then you can evaluate and, and, and value your case appropriately from that point forward. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, a life expectancy expert, are you going to need one? Cause in some cases you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, somebody who had cardiac conditions, and that's obviously going to affect your life expectancy. So, you know, why would you be, why would you be evaluating a case for somebody who's going to live until, you know, seventy versus the normal life expectancy of whatever it is, seventy or eighty? Um, so, anything like that, identifying those damages experts early um, is going to help with mitigating the value, and it's going to help you find an, an earlier resolution to the case. And of course, you can't do a podcast about healthcare without talking about the pandemic and COVID-19. Any thoughts on how that will affect damages uh, in, in cases brought against you know, healthcare providers? There definitely was a trend last year where if you, if you polled, uh, you know, potential jurors, um, they definitely had some warm and fuzzy feeling toward, uh, you know, doctors and hospitals and, you know, quote unquote, frontline workers. Um, and I and I think that that is not something that is going to stick around for the long term. Um, you know, memories are short in that regard. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but we do, we do, we do toss people off after a while. Yeah. But, uh, but no, they're in, and well-deserved warm and fuzzy. Yeah. They certainly were on the front lines, but, but yeah, that will fade. Right. And, and I think there was, I, I, and I hate to say, it, but I, I don't think there was a lot of love lost for, for the nursing home industry in general, but, but I think the nursing home industry is definitely going to take a hit because of COVID despite their best efforts. And I have to say, some of the hardest working people are those in, our, in you know, caring for our aging population. And, and I think that's, that, that's something that really, you know, 
we hope to impress upon um, our juries going into into the trial phases of of any litigation of COVID litigation claims. I think that in a in a post COVID world, we're we're going to still see these mega verdicts, and I think that the memories of all of the good that these people are doing needs to be you know present and accounted for, and um, you know. I think it's especially the claims that are going to arise uh, stemming from treatment within the last year, whether it be COVID or otherwise, there's definitely going to be some effect on on the verdict ranges for for those cases as well. Okay, real good. Well, Sandy, thank you very much for doing this again. Yes. (laughs) So happy to. Anytime. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I want to thank Sandy Chanfloni for, for diving in and doing, doing a great job on yet another, uh, on another episode. Uh, once again, I'm Tom Hagee with HP Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration between my company and Fastcase and Law Street Media. Hey, if you want to participate in the, uh, in the podcast or, you know, if you just have any comments or ideas for topics or speakers, write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. Yeah, do you have do you have any do you have any uh, comments about working remotely? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I I do like working remotely. I do. I, I do miss yeah. I, I do miss folks in the office, but um I, I feel like it's it's a happy little bubble I live in right now. So <laughs> I'd like a good balance. I would like to see people maybe twice a week. You know, the rest just of the enough. Time. Just enough. <laughs> just enough to not miss them. No, I'm. Um, I say the same about my family. I, yes. So <laughs> don't put that in because <laughs> they will no, listen I to won't. this. <laughs> Actually, they know that. Just, you could totally put that in. It's true. That's it. That shows how differently we're thinking. I'm thinking about the people at work. Oh, okay. Uh, that I, yeah. It's them. No. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we both love our families. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs>